0: Welcome to the New Zealand China Council podcast. I'm Rachel Maidment, Executive Director of the Council. This week is Chinese Language Week, and I'm delighted on this podcast to speak with Professor Martin East and Dr. Danny Wong from the University of Auckland. Martin is a professor of language education in the School of Cultures, Languages and Linguistics, and is also the author of a report commissioned by the Council in 2018 on teaching languages in schools. Danny is a lecturer in Chinese at the University of Auckland and has taught Chinese as the second language at schools and universities in Beijing, Hong Kong and New Zealand. I started off by asking Martin the value of learning a language.
1: I think one of the major challenges that we need to address in so-called anglophone contexts, such as New Zealand, is the pervasive myth that everyone speaks English. Well, the reality of course is that they don't. Although it's been reported that up to 25% of the world's population can speak English, although many of these people have learnt English as an additional language, that means at least 75% of the world's population doesn't speak English, and even those who do speak English as an additional language might well prefer to speak in their own language. Now, if you look at the estimated number of first language speakers of particular languages worldwide in 2019, in millions, Mandarin Chinese has 1,311 million speakers which is more than three times the number of speakers of English as a first language. So, according to this statistic, Mandarin is the most spoken language in the world. We can't get away from the international significance of English, but that said, we need to realise and acknowledge the international significance of other languages. Learning an additional language gives us a completely different perspective on life and a window into appreciating and beginning to understand another cultural perspective. There's a wonderful Czech proverb. You live a new life for every language you speak. If you know only one language, you live only once. So our language is always going to be useful no matter what you do.
0: And we often think of language learning in terms of the importance of uh, learning Chinese because China is a major trading partner but as you know there are so many more reasons than just uh, trade and economics. Danny, do you have anything, any points to add about the importance of learning another language and in particular Chinese?
2: As a Chinese language teacher for so many years I have seen the importance of learning the language for communication and in the New Zealand case it's not only for Um, Teaching Kiwi students to speak Chinese for communication is for the young generation to learn how to build trust. The trust building is not only at the institutional level, but at the personal level.
0: Yeah, without a doubt, I mean, language is an important mode of understanding another culture. And back in New Zealand also, I think it is is really important that people are able to understand a system that can at times be quite impenetrable, um, particularly if you don't have the language. Obviously a lot of people do understand on the face of it that learning another language is important uh, and they certainly understand that Chinese is, is becoming increasingly important. So what are we actually seeing in the schools though, Martin? What did your report show in terms of were students actually studying Mandarin and what was happening at the different levels?
1: I think we get a different scenario if we look at the different levels within the compulsory education sector. At the secondary level we're seeing overall a decline in the number of students who are taking a language. So although for quite a number of years things remained steady at around one in four of the school population taking a language, over the last few years we've seen that trending downwards to one in six. So in general in terms of language learning in the secondary sector isn't necessarily an encouraging picture. Having said that, we are seeing some level of growth in taking up the learning of Mandarin in the secondary sector. If you look at the intermediate school sector, by contrast, we've seen some phenomenal growth in the take-up of language learning, and in particular, um, learning of Mandarin. So in the intermediate school sector we've seen a trend that's been developing over a number of years where more and more schools are taking on the learning of Mandarin. And that in large part has been to do with the Mandarin Language Assistant Programme.
0: So if you can explain you know, how the Mandarin Language Assistant Programme runs and what impact that has had particularly on primary
1: and intermediate schools. Okay, the Mandarin Language Assistant Programme gives opportunity for those who are in China and who may, for example, be studying for a degree in teaching Chinese as an additional language, to come to New Zealand to work within the school sector through the Confucius Institutes in New Zealand. And that project has shown a great number of people who've wanted to become involved in it, and it's become a major resource for the intermediate school sector. So... That's probably the strongest way in which I think teaching languages, teaching Mandarin in the intermediate school sector has been supported over the last few years.
0: So that programme has obviously been very successful, but what have been some of the things that haven't gone so well with it over, over the last few years?
1: I think one of the major challenges with the programme has been that the people coming into it have learnt languages within a Confucian heritage culture. As such, they've placed a lot of emphasis on teacher-directed learning, memorization, repetition, etc. And that's what they've become familiar with in learning an additional language. When the Mandarin language assistants come to New Zealand, they bring with them all of that level of background. And that can become a problem because within New Zealand, by contrast, we have a very much a learner-centered and experiential way of learning. And so I think sometimes we can end up with this culture clash between what the Mandarin language assistants have been used to in their own education and what the New Zealand system is expecting of them. Now I know that the Confucius Institutes put quite a bit of time into a level of professional development and hopefully they're also receiving professional development through the schools that they become involved in. However, old habits die hard and beliefs about effective learning are also quite pervasive. And so I think that's a major challenge
2: I would say for the differences that people perceived, both the teachers and students, about how the Chinese language should be taught in outside China and the Confucius culture, it's not only a case for New Zealand, but in Australia, in Canada, in the US, UK, elsewhere, a lot of places. So I think this is a common issue that for the Chinese teaching professionals and for scholars in Chinese language teaching to continue the research on this topic. Last year, I had a a Marston found, successfully funded by the Royal Society of New Zealand, and the project aims to understand how the Chinese language should be best taught in the New Zealand context. The title of the project is called Reconceptualizing Chinese Language Teaching in New Zealand, the unheard stories from learners. So I think a couple of scholars from outside China have been advocating a learner's way, a learner's perspective in understanding the best way of Chinese language teaching, because for a long time it's in the Chinese classroom, it's always as what Martin said, it's teacher centred, textbook driven and assessment focused. So all the energy and efforts from the teacher and the students are putting on the drills and listening to the tapes and, and CD and audio files and, and videos recently. but we don't really hear what the students, how they perceive and how they receive the kind of pedagogy from their teachers. So we don't really know what's actually happening from the student side. So I hope this three-year project will go into give us something different and make a difference in New Zealand.
0: Obviously the Confucius Institutes and their role globally has been quite controversial lately. How has that been impacting on uh, your programmes and have you seen any impact uh, in New Zealand?
1: I think at the Mandarin language assistant level, we haven't seen any particular impact on that. My own perception of it is that the MLA participants take their work seriously. They want to promote Chinese language and Chinese culture. That's what they've come to do. And within the constraints that I've talked about earlier, they are doing that quite successfully. I think certainly as far as that particular aspect of the work is concerned that's a positive thing um, that I hope that we'll see continuing.
2: This is a difficult question because uh, there are a lot of issues involved into the image of Confucius Institute. Perhaps I think you know that Confucius Institute headquarter has changed its name so that it won't be seen as a government-funded institute. It will become completely like from the community. So I think China is realizing that the image of Confucius Institute and its nature is not well perceived uh, in the Western countries. As we can see in the past few years, um, many of them were closed. In European countries, in the in the U.S. and also in Australia, so our three Confucius Institutes are doing quite well here. We don't see a lot of impacts on their operation, daily operation. I think that's really it's a good point for New Zealand and New Zealand people and New Zealand students as well. We don't put too much politics into education. Institute, and even though we got disputes through the media and among the community as well, I think they are trying to find their ways of doing their their teaching and their teacher training in a Kiwi way, as well. So both sides are learning how to accept each other at this level. Well, I think
0: uh, you know, obviously, it's really interesting seeing that drop off when you get to secondary school level, and. Obviously the Mandarin Language Assistance Programme has helped to drive it through primary and intermediate, but why are we getting that drop off at secondary schools?
1: Part of that has to do with the choices that are made at school level around which languages to offer. Part of that has to do with not necessarily having the specialist staff available. When I was working in language teacher education at the Faculty of Education and Social Work here at the University, we noted that we saw an increase in the number of people coming through who wanted to be teachers of Chinese but I am aware that having specialist teachers in place in the secondary sector is a challenge.
0: Uh, you have had a lot of people coming through the university that have wanted to teach Chinese at a secondary level but why why are they not progressing?
1: A lot depends on whether or not they're able to secure a job at the end of the training program. Because schools run in New Zealand as autonomous units, they can make decisions around exactly which aspects of the curriculum they want to promote and exactly which languages they would like to teach. So if you have, for example, a school leadership that is not particularly favourably disposed towards languages, um, they're not necessarily going to invest curriculum time and staffing time and cost into bringing somebody on board. So I think part of the issue at the secondary level in New Zealand is this issue of not necessarily having the specialist teachers out there. Another problem I also think is that there is a perception amongst Kiwi learners, Pākehā learners for example, that learning Chinese is just very very difficult and that perhaps learning a European language might be more straightforward. And so where options are being given to students, they may well choose to take what they perceive as being the easier pathway.
0: Well, I think that's definitely correct, and I know even from the the very long time ago that I was studying uh, Japanese at high school, and I knew taking it that it was going to be really difficult to get a good mark. Is this still an issue? Do students feel that they won't get good marks if they take languages? And is this exacerbated... You know, our native speakers, for example, taken out of the scaling process? How does that work for secondary school students?
1: I think that's a big challenge. Um, One of the challenges in the New Zealand context is that not only do we have New Zealand-born students who may not have learned a language at all up until the intermediate or the secondary sector, we also have Chinese heritage students who come from a Chinese background who may well speak Chinese at home. And added to that, there may well be a number of international students from China who are joining a school. And so you end up with three different communities within the school. The heritage community, the international community, and the New Zealand community. Because New Zealand is such a small country, we're not able to differentiate between those three groups when it comes to operating a language programme. And so those three groups would find themselves all in the same classroom. Now, if you've got heritage speakers and international students who are Chinese in the same classroom as Kiwi kids, that can often be very off-putting for the New Zealand students because they would feel intimidated by the fact that others sitting in the classroom have got far more proficiency than them. So unless we can reconcile that tension of the three different groups, I think we may find that New Zealand students may well be turned off of doing Chinese in that particular environment.
0: And how do we address that? Do you know any other comparable jurisdictions, such as Australia, that actually have policies in place to assist?
1: Australia, just because of its sheer size, is able to make the differentiations that we can't. And so, as far as I am aware, they are able to offer specialist pathways for the different groups that are there. And in doing that, clearly, you create that opportunity for those who haven't learned any Chinese before to feel more comfortable and more safe in the learning environment. But that's an economies of scale issue. And it's one that we just can't address in New Zealand because of the small numbers.
0: Are there any things you think that we actually could do now to increase those numbers uh, at the secondary school level?
1: I think making the language learning experience in school an exciting one, a vibrant one, helping people to see that there's value in learning Mandarin, that there's excitement in learning about another culture. So exposing students to positive models of what it means to learn a language and positive reasons for being able to learn, positive reasons for choosing to learn another language.
0: And to that end, there has been a lot of talk about an actual national language learning policy. What does that involve and what impact would that have?
1: I think it would would be good if we can work towards a national languages policy, and I'm aware of several groups over the last few years who have been moving towards trying to get the government to look at that. We had all of this debate back in the late 1990s in New Zealand, where the government appeared to be quite favourable towards developing a national languages policy. We had Jeffrey Waite's report that came out, Aotearo Speaking for Ourselves, that was advocating for a national languages policy. It didn't gain traction in the government at the time, and I think part of the reason for that was because it isn't just about English versus international languages. It's also about where do Pacifica languages fit in, where does Reo Maori as a language of Tonga to Fenua fit in, how do you balance the different needs and aspirations of different linguistic groups to ensure that there is equitability and everybody is taken account of? And I think for those reasons, a national languages policy was put in the too-hard basket and, and it wasn't developed as a result of all the rhetoric around the 1990s. So I think we're still facing those similar issues today. How do we make sure that we have equitability an adequate and equal representation across the different groups who may want to have a stake in a national language policy. And I think until we can have more forthright discussions around that, we're likely to find that a national language policy is not necessarily forthcoming.
0: That's very interesting. I think it's been very clear with a push for steam subjects, for example, that when there is some momentum you can get a lot of traction, but I guess there's lots of different competing interests about you know where schools should put their focus and languages are a part of that mix also. Yeah, Danny, did you have anything to add on on that point?
2: Not particularly on the national languages policy, but I would like to share something that I read when I was writing a paper about New Zealand's Chinese language teaching. Last year, one of the Australian politicians, Chris Bowen, spoke about a case of decades of learning teaching Chinese in Australia. He actually mentioned a number, 130 Australian people who are not from a Chinese background or heritage can actually use Chinese for doing business in China and with Chinese partners. So this number is quite alarming because after so much time and resources put into Chinese language teaching in Australia as a whole country and the result is we don't have that many people as we expected with the proficiency that can actually help Australia better understand or or do better business with China. So we probably would need to answer this question before we have a national language policies. Uh, Just take Chinese as an example. What kind of students we want them to be after we put the resources into language teaching? So what is the goal for language education for our New Zealand students as well so it's it's going to be a long-term project and a lot of research will need to be done. That's fascinating
0: that's a startlingly low figure (laughs) And, I mean, you'd only have to extrapolate from that that for New Zealand it would be even lower. I mean, uh, my experience at the Foreign Ministry, uh, some of our listeners will know this, but we put all diplomats heading up to China for the first time through a two-year intensive programme of language learning, and that's now been extended to MPI as well. And certainly, even after two years of full-time intensive Chinese language training, you have to keep it up and keep working on it to get that sort of level of working proficiency. Uh, So it's certainly a very challenging language, and it certainly, you know, we can't underestimate how difficult Chinese, in particular, is. We were sitting next door to a French class, and they were reading novels, and we were still learning tones and characters.
2: (laughs) I would like to add on that point as well, because when uh, the way people without Chinese backgrounds or without the heritage, the way they were taught are exactly the same as how Chinese students are taught. Because for a long time, we see Chinese language as a character-based language. But I think it's stereotype of the Chinese language. It's kind of limit our imagination of how this language should be learned and taught. Because with the technology, and especially during the COVID-19 online teaching, we have discovered the power of the technology in the beginners Chinese language course um, because with the computer and keyboard, and our students actually learned how to type Chinese way much faster than they actually write by pen and stroke by stroke on the paper. Of course, the handwriting skills are important, but we're talking about a future generation and the generation they grew up with an iPad or iPhone at their hand, they barely write anything with with a piece of paper. Why are we asking them to do this uh, with a difficult language? Because with the pinyin and the keyboard, they can completely write Chinese and recognize the captain, choose the correct one, or sometimes the wrong one, because Chinese people make mistakes as well. So we don't have to be so harsh on them, and we don't have to be that traditional. So we need research on this, this level, on this track, so that we can teach Chinese in a better way, in a more innovative way in the future.
0: What do you think about the rise of different technologies that, you know, I remember when I was in China, I went to a fair, and one of the companies there was using one of these products where you'd speak into it, and it would automatically translate, and I just remember thinking, why did I spend two years, you know, of blood, sweat, and tears, learning this language when this is coming? What do you, what do you think about that?
2: Well, <laughs> talking about Google Translate, sometimes, you know, we find... The software is too smart because it gives you not only the correct Chinese but also sometimes um, the language that a native speaker uh, can speak about. So we had a case that in first semester this year, and the students got caught by a kind of cheating during the exam. What he put to, uh, on the test paper is. From Google Translate. It's way beyond his level and it's very easy to get identified. (laughs) So, that's, um, I think technology is doing amazing things and it's actually helping us to get the job done quickly, but not in that way. Relying on technology will be a big mistake for the younger generation because for them, Learning language, as I said in the beginning, is about building trust. It's about seeking truth from facts. So it's about they learn one word or another so that they know how this group of people think. It's not only about just use this word and get this job done. That's so not enough.
1: Although it would seem that technology offers a lot of promise in terms of being able to communicate with somebody else in another language through, for example, translation and apps, using another language and communicating effectively in another language is far more than just knowing the vocabulary and just knowing the right words. There's relationship building, there's intercultural understanding, there's appreciation for where somebody else is coming from. And technology can't fill those gaps. So I think that although technology may help in initial or superficial relationship building in terms of the pure language, there's a lot more going on in interactions with other people that technology simply can't handle. And so I think there will always be a place for the learning of an additional language, including a learning of the culture that goes with that language, in order to understand how to better facilitate international and intercultural communication.
0: Um, Danny, now I'd just like to turn to you, and with this drop-off at secondary school level, what impact is that having at the university
2: level? Uh, to answer that question, I think I can give you some statistics. I've checked the Ministry of Education data about Chinese language enrollments in the past 10 years from 2010 to 2019, actually the figure of the entire foreign language learning or additional international language learning has dropped 39.6% from 4,200 to 2,535. And if you look at how many New Zealand students are actually learning an international language, it's just one7 and uh, the top five international languages are uh, Spanish, Japanese, French, Chinese and German. Chinese, even though we, we can see the growth of Chinese learning in the primary school level and to say in the secondary school level as well, but certainly we don't see the Mandarin fever at the tertiary level. Even though the University of Auckland has the largest Chinese language program in this country. Uh, The program was founded in 1966. Uh, We are still seeing a drop of enrollments uh, in the past 10 years. I think it's probably because we don't have the students coming from the secondary schools. It's because we have the drop already in secondary school. So it's difficult to encourage them to continue their study at the university. So what we have at the university, the biggest group of learners are beginners, which means they have never learned Mandarin in schools, no matter primary or secondary schools. So they wanted to give Chinese a try. Most of the students are from engineering programs or they're law students. They think Chinese language is hard enough. So they're kind of challenging. I want to give it a, a taste. But as for how many students wanted to become a Chinese major, we've got a very minimal number of them. So we don't know how to see the Chinese teaching can be a sustainable education throughout this country because we see the number is dropping significantly.
0: Mm, so there's a lot of rhetoric about how learning Mandarin is going to be crucial going forward, but not a lot of follow-through.
2: It depends... I think we got the problem twofold here. One is the level of difficulty that people perceive Chinese as a notoriously difficult language. It's impossible to learn. So whatever, whenever you want to read an article about Chinese learning, you, always, you can always spot one or two lines about it. And even a paper published by a, a renowned scholar is called Why Chinese So Damn Hard. <laughs> you don't really see this title for any language anywhere. But for Chinese,
0: it's interesting too talking about this perception of Chinese being difficult. Because without a doubt, while there are aspects of it which very time consuming, you know, learning the characters, for example, there are other parts of Chinese that are very simple. So grammar, for example, is is, is much less complex than French or Arabic. Hmm.
2: Yeah, that's true. Um, so when we introduce. Chinese language for the first time to the beginners of Chinese at this university would tell them all about the easy part of learning Chinese and they would gradually find out that this is not easy but it's better that students begin from a way that they think this language is manageable.
0: Well this is of course why catching children young is so important because they're not worried about difficulty they're not thinking about all the challenges they just pick it up. And uh, yeah, obviously if we had a language as policy and we had a bilingual base in New Zealand, you'd be able to reduce a lot of that fear around learning a second language, wouldn't you?
2: We don't have to teach Chinese in a Chinese way. We are trying to explore some uh, Maori ways of teaching and the concept of ako is particularly important for Chinese language teaching. So we want the Chinese teachers to be able to to treat their students as a complex social being instead of just a student sitting there receiving a new language and new culture so that we can have a reciprocal relationship in the classroom. and Through this way, we we'll make Chinese language more accessible and more understandable and more attractive to students because uh, everyone is a part of this learning for Chinese teachers, especially the young teachers, they have so much to learn from their students as well, because they are teaching Kiwi students in New Zealand.
0: Thanks to Martin and Danny for shining some light on Mandarin language learning in New Zealand. I would note that there is currently a private members bill before parliament aiming to strengthen second language learning in primary and intermediate schools that is now open for submissions. This is an issue we will follow closely and look forward to continuing to cover. For more podcasts, please check out our website nzchinacouncil.org.nz or listen on SoundCloud, Spotify or iTunes.
2: Thanks for listening.